Well, I would invite you to turn your Bible with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We will try and finish out verse 1 today. (laughs) Titus chapter 1. The section we're in is the introductory four verses, uh, and we are in part two of uh, verse 1, and we will, Lord willing, be able to finish off verses 2 through 4 next time. There have been several tragic events in the news lately. I mean, I suppose there always are, but it seems lately there are some we can think about uh, very readily. I wonder if you've seen this one from a few weeks ago. The headline in the Chicago Sun-Times reads this way, Ex-Cubs player Ben Zobrist claims in a lawsuit that wife Juliana had an affair with their pastor. That story has made the rounds in the media, and it hits close to home. That pastor is a graduate of the master's seminary. His doctoral dissertation was turned into a book that I found particularly helpful. Well, the lawsuit goes beyond alleging adultery and claims that uh, this individual uh, robbed or defrauded this couple's charity organization. Prior to those allegations, the church this pastor led was split in 2014 uh, because he had been promoting a doctrine that moved away from the sound teaching that he had been taught and that he himself taught in the earlier years of his ministry. We know that being a pastor doesn't make you immune from sin, or at least I hope you know that, because I certainly know that. Being trained at a theologically sound seminary doesn't protect someone against the enticements of the flesh, and this is why Paul told Timothy, keep watch on yourself, meaning your life, and your doctrine. Orthopraxy, which means right living, And orthodoxy, right believing, require purposeful effort if you and I are going to stay faithful to Christ. There are temptations and dangers everywhere all around us, and if we are going to remain faithful, we have to be watchful and guard our lives and our doctrine. It's been said that orthodoxy, right believing, leads to orthopraxy, right living. On the other hand, it's also been said that heterodoxy, wrong believing, leads to wrong living, or heteropraxy. Now, I don't know this particular pastor's heart, and it's not my role to judge him, but there's at least one factor that I think we can discern that may have contributed to his decisions, and that is That over the last 10 years or so, this pastor began to embrace a theology that elevates God's grace above the call to holiness. He focused on certain aspects of the believer's identity and ignored others. The theology he embraced has been called liberate theology, or some call it free grace theology. And if you're familiar with this, it's a stepchild of non-lordship salvation. This theology is built on the foundation, listen closely, it's built on the foundation that you cannot save yourself, and so you must trust solely in the finished substitutionary work of Christ. Now, is that true or is that false? That's true. The problem is the structure that's built on top of that foundation. They go on to say that once you're saved, any effort you put forth at trying to put off sin and pursue sanctification is de facto, by nature, legalism and trying to earn your salvation. Growth in sanctification, they would say, is only rightly accomplished passively as you rest in the grace of Christ not actively as you pursue holiness. In other words, this theology teaches that sanctification is not something you participate in, but is something God alone works in your life. 
It affirms the right doctrine of monergistic salvation, that is, that God alone is responsible for salvation, but it denies that sanctification is synergistic, meaning that it's the result of the believer cooperating with the Holy Spirit in bringing about holiness in your life. Now, if you have a hard time tracking with all of that, here's one practical way this works out. Every time you read a command or an imperative in Scripture, which, as you know, comes about quite a bit, especially in the New Testament, that give instructions to believers and to the church, liberate theology or free grace theology teaches that those commands are not there to tell you what to do, but rather to remind you that you cannot do those things, and therefore there's an implied call to just rest on the grace of Christ who's paid the penalty for sin. So take, for example, Titus chapter 2, verse 2, where Titus is told to exhort the older men to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. An older man hearing those commands and holding to a liberate theology would say, oh Lord, I am not any of those things. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for His blood shed on my behalf and for forgiving me of all of my sin. Now, what's tricky is that that response is not wrong. It's just incomplete. What should happen is after we are reminded of the forgiveness we have in Christ, we should consider specific ways in which we fall short of whatever command we're reading in Scripture. And then we should plan to make changes with the Holy Spirit's help to to grow in faithfulness to these commands, and then put those plans into action in obedience to Christ. Friends, this is a dangerous doctrine, and it's also really bad grammar. (laughs) An imperative is a command, not a reminder. And commands to believers are matched with all the spiritual resources God has given us to empower us to obey those commands. Now, historically, non-lordship salvation or uh, non-lordship theology has taught that imperatives are real imperatives, but they're really more suggestions that you can take or leave and still be a Christian. I remember reading a, a book by one particular prominent theologian who advocated this doctrine, and Answering a hypothetical, he said that uh, a prostitute could hypothetically uh, recognize Jesus Christ as her Savior, but not as her Lord, and continue on in sin the rest of her life, and no one would be right to question the genuineness of her salvation. In other words, the non-lordship position has taught that a person could profess faith in Christ, rebel against God the rest of their life, and still be saved. On the other hand, liberate or free grace theology teaches that imperatives aren't even imperatives. Not only can you not contribute to your salvation, which again is true, but God places no demands on you as a believer. Instead, again, sanctification happens as a person steeps their mind on the gospel and the love of God and God naturally changes them without any effort on their own. Now, Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. And sadly, tragically, there have been several prominent uh, proponents of this theology who, like this pastor, have either engaged in disqualifying sin or been, uh, become more manifestly ungodly the longer they promote this theology. Now, where did a theology like this come from? It's interesting that when you hear the, the testimonies of most of their proponents, when they, where they talk about how they came to this new understanding of God's grace, there's a common experience. Uh, several of them recount how they were active in serving the Lord, exerting themselves for the kingdom, spending their lives and their energy. But what motivated them was the thought that they had to exhaust themselves in order to make God happy with them. And if they ever messed up, God would get mad at them. They weren't trying to work for their salvation per se, but they were trying to work for God's smile. 
as if God is a grumpy father who only smiles when his children meet some impossible standard, which means he doesn't really ever smile. Beloved, some of you have thought this way. I've heard it a number of times in the counseling room. And this thought, this way of thinking leads to an exhausting life where I have to keep trying and I have to do this and I have to do that. Otherwise, God is mad at me. And anything that happens in life that is undesirable, that is unpleasant, any form of suffering must mean that God is punishing me. That is a false view of God. Well, as some of those men and women came to recognize that that is a false view of God, they swung the pendulum all the way to the other side and basically said, because of Christ, God really doesn't care how you live. After all, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Christ has paid it all, and so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In fact, guilt, they would say, for the believer is a denial of the gospel. On the other side, so on one side, God only cares about how you live. That's legalism. On the other side, God doesn't care at all about how you live. That's what's called antinomianism, no law. Both views are wrong. If you are not grounded in the biblical teaching of the foundation of Christian living, you will be tempted to fall on one side or the other. Either you'll be frustrated by your inability to, uh, to live according to God's demands, or you simply won't care and you'll just constantly be thanking God for His grace and yet living a sinful life. Now, in the wisdom of God, Paul begins this brief letter with a lengthy introduction, relatively speaking, that reminds us of the basis for Christian living. He does this by means of explaining what drives him personally as an apostle, and in reflecting on what drives Paul, we can look at our own lives and consider what should drive our lives today. And we started three weeks ago by looking at the first two identities that mark the believer, that provide fuel for our lives. If we're going to persevere in living faithfully to Christ, we need fuel to propel us, and Paul gives us that here. So look with me as I just read verses 1 through 4 to get us into the text. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Excuse me, our Savior. As I noted last time in the introduction to this letter, we discovered three main ingredients in this introduction that fuel a zealous life for good deeds. Number one is knowing your position from God. Number two is knowing your purpose from God. And number three is knowing your promise from God. If you don't know who you are, you will be easily swayed by the shifting sands of your emotions and the pressures that come in around you. If you don't know why you're here, you will be easily distracted by lesser goals and purposes. And if you don't know what God has promised, the things of this world will become far too important to you. And so we started last time looking at the first two of the three identities that characterize our position from God. God is the one who gives us our position. This is not a matter of self-discovery. This is God of establish this is a matter of God establishing and revealing who we are. And in this text, we find three identities that are true for the believer which fuel a life zealous for good deeds. First, we saw that we are slaves of God. Second, we are ambassadors for Christ. And third, we are chosen of God. First, as we saw, we are slaves 
of God. We belong to God, not only by virtue of the fact that we are His creation and anything that He owns, He has sovereign right to do whatever He wants with. We belong to Him. He owns us because we are His creation. But more specifically, He owns us by the fact that Christ purchased believers, us who have put our faith in Christ. We were slaves of sin, Paul says in Romans 6, but now we are slaves of God. Last time I noticed or I noted that bondservant, as it's translated here in the NAS, uh, is not an accurate translation and that the Greek word doulos only means slave. I contrasted the slave who is owned uh, due to no uh, choice of his own to the servant of Deuteronomy 15 who had the option of freedom but chose to remain a servant. Now, after the service, someone came up to me and very graciously uh, brought to my attention a couple things that, may have, that I may have erred in what I had said, uh, namely that doulos is actually used in Deuteronomy 15, and second, that in the introduction to the ESV Bible, they explain that there are a variety of kinds of, of uh, types of slaves and servants that are identified by doulos, and only context could determine which was the best translation. And so, that drove me to do further study, and I thought it would be helpful to uh, walk through some of the fruit of that study with you briefly. Let me start by addressing the second concern regarding the ESV Bible. I don't know if you've ever read what comes before Genesis in your Bible. Uh, it's certainly not going to be inspired information, but it can be helpful. Many times, Bible translators write an introduction to their translation to explain, at least in part, the decisions that they made in their tr translation. The translators of the ESV explain in their introduction that they chose, uh, why they chose to translate doulos as servant most of the time. And since many of you use the ESV translation, I thought it would be helpful for me to mention at least a couple of reasons why I don't find their explanation helpful. First, in explaining why they don't always translate doulos as slave, they say this, quote, in the New Testament times, a doulos is often described as a bondservant, that is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years, except in, for those in Caesar's household who were contracted for 14 years. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master and officially declared a freedman, unquote. Now, unfortunately, after looking at a number of resources regarding slavery in the Roman Empire, and I asked a, a group of several hundred pastors and scholars online, and I even asked omniscient Google. <laughs> but after all of that, I could find no source or basis for that explanation. I couldn't find anything about a seven or a 14-year contract, slavery, or servitude, which doesn't necessarily mean it didn't exist. It just means if it does exist, almost nobody knows about it. It's true to say that slaves were not always slaves. There were slaves who would be freed. But I came up with no biblical or historical evidence for the ESV's basis for calling slaves bondservants or servants. Furthermore, they go on to explain the reasoning for their translation, uh, for translating doulos as slave or bondservant or servant, depending on the context. They say it's not based on the relationship of the person to their master, but rather on the type of work that they did. Now, in addition to that being a subjective call, you know, us in the 21st century saying, oh, you, you were a doctor, I'm going to call you a servant, or you were a manual laborer, I'm going to call you a slave, that's a subjective call. That approach adds confusion because it misconstrues the social and economic dynamics involved in that historical context. Now, just to be clear, I do like the ESV. I used it for many years when I was in seminary and as a pastor in another church, and I only stopped using it when I lost my Bible and decided to switch to the NAS, which was what our church was using at the time. But the ESV is, is a good translation. I just don't agree with their translation choice in this case. And that, of course, also applies to the New American, American Standard. Now, as to the issue of doulos being used in Deuteronomy 15, some of, you, some of you might be thinking, well, how is that even possible since Deuteronomy is written in Hebrew, not in Greek? Well, the Greek translation of the Old Testament 
which is actually the translation that is most often quoted in the New Testament as it looks back to the Old Testament. Uh, it's called the Septuagint, or some people call it Septuagint, however you want to put the emphasis. Uh, th- that title means 70, and it's so titled because 70 scholars, Jewish scholars, translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek two to 300 years before Christ. In actual fact, the De- uh, in Deuteronomy 15, the noun doulos does not appear, but the verb form douluo does. The verb can mean to be enslaved or to be a slave, but most commonly it simply means to serve. For example, in the parable of the prodigal son, which most of you will be familiar with, at the end of the parable, we hear the older brother say this to his father, for so many years I have been serving you, there's Luo, and I have never neglected a command of yours. This is just one of a number of situations where the person doing the serving is not a slave. They're just serving someone else in authority. Or consider Genesis chapter 29 where um, Jacob serves Laban for Rachel and he gets Leah and of course uh, serves longer for Rachel. He served Laban but he was definitely not a slave. So the presence of the verb in Deuteronomy 15 does not signify the position of the person. Now, when it comes to the noun that signifies a person's status or position in life or identity, the meaning changes. In Deuteronomy 15, the person who chooses to be bound to their master is identified as an oikates, a a household servant, not a doulos. In the New Testament, doulos is used 126 times. 102 of those in the New American Standard is translated slave. But of the remaining 24 uses, 22 of them identify a Christian standing before God or a a Christian's position in relationship to God. And in those instances, the NASB translates doulos as bondservant as it does here in Titus. It's not because slave is a bad translation, it's just an uncomfortable one. We don't have a problem saying that Onesimus was the slave of Philemon or that Malchus, whom Peter cut off his right ear, was a slave of the high priest. But it does seem odd to say that Peter and Paul and James and Jude and John and you and me for that matter are slaves of Christ. It just doesn't sound right. But sound right or not, that's exactly what we are. We have been bought with a price. We are doubly owned by God, again, by virtue of Him having created us and by virtue of Him having redeemed us from slavery to sin. The Lord has complete ownership and control over us. He has complete freedom to do whatever He wants to us, and we have no rights that we can claim before God. Did you know that even Jesus put Himself in this position? Philippians 2, 7 says, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. You probably remember that as servant or bondservant, but it is slave, being made in the likeness of men. Now, he wasn't the slave of any man. He was the slave of God. Even Jesus, who is God in the flesh, did not exercise his own authority and do whatever he wanted. Jesus said things like, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Or, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father has taught me. He would say, for I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what I should say and what to speak. And of course, the most painful demonstration of Him being a slave of God and serving the Father's will is in the garden when He prayed, Father... If you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yours be done. The church, if Jesus, who is Lord and God, could submit himself to the Father's will, even to the point of death, how much more should we be compelled to view ourselves as slaves of Christ? 
How much more should we set aside our own desires and our own ambitions and our own standards and submit ourselves to the will of Christ in all things? The point is this. After further study, I'm even more convinced that doulos should rightly be translated slave because douloi, which is the plural of doulos, are owned. It's not about what you do. It's about the fact that you are owned. And again, as God's creation, He owns us. And as those bought by the blood of Christ, we are doubly owned. Our lives are to be entirely submitted to Him. We should be fueled by this reality. We are not our own. We are bought with a price, so we should glorify God with our life, 1 Corinthians 6.20. The second identity that we see in this passage is that we are ambassadors of Christ. Paul identifies here uh, himself here as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and in verse 3, he notes that by the command of God, he was entrusted with the proclamation of the gospel. He was commissioned by Jesus Christ, and that commission was validated through the miracles that the Holy Spirit performed through him. He wasn't the only apostle, of course, but what was unique about him is that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the one who took the gospel beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria. More than that, he was the one who primarily laid the foundation of doctrine and practice in all the churches and ensured that the Jews would receive the Gentiles as equal members into the church. Perhaps more fundamentally, in Ephesians 3, Paul describes his directive from Christ this way, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The mystery that was hidden for ages is that the Messiah long awaited by the Jews was not the Messiah for the Jews only, but also for the entire world. That revelation in no way contradicts ancient promises. In fact, the Old Testament hints many times and and makes it actually rather clear that Gentiles will be blessed through God's promises. But now this once hidden truth that the kingdom of God extended beyond Israel's borders is set forth with, with full clarity through Paul's preaching. More than that, Paul says in that passage... The reason this truth has come to light at this point in history, 2,000 years ago by our time, is not only for the benefit of all people, but particularly for the benefit of angelic beings. Again, he wrote this, so, the manifold, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Not unlike what we read in the book of Job, God often does things primarily for the purpose or for the benefit of angelic beings. Paul's preaching of the gospel was indeed the power of God to those who believe, 1 Corinthians 1, but it's also a demonstration to holy angels and unholy angels of the wisdom of God. Now, what the apostle began... All believers have the privilege to continue. The message he proclaimed with his lips and with his pen is now ours to disseminate and to proclaim with whatever opportunities are placed before us. Pastors and evangelists are not the only ones who are called to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We are all ambassadors of Christ. Parents, you have a prime opportunity to be an ambassador for Christ to your children. Young people, whether you're at youth group or whether you're hanging out with your friends or at school, you are in a a good position to be an ambassador for Christ to those around you. Those of you who work outside the home are witnesses of Christ. Even when we're not speaking of Christ, our lives should demonstrate and put on display the character of Christ. Our speech should reflect the kindness and the graciousness of Christ. 
Our attitudes in life should exhibit our hope in Christ. Many people in the world today are trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to find themselves and then put themselves out there, express themselves, make their mark on the world by making their name great. We should be looking to point people to Christ and make His name great. That's what should fuel our lives. Now, the final identity we find in this passage is not derived from how Paul describes himself, but rather how he describes all believers. Look again at verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God. Chosen of God. Chosen is eklektos in the Greek, and depending on the context, it can be translated chosen or choice or elect. This is the doctrine of election, which tragically is one of the most controversial doctrines among evangelical churches. Everyone believes in election. You can't read the Bible without coming across the doctrine. The debate is whether, is not whether a choice has been made. The debate is over who does the choosing and under what circumstances. There are two primary positions, and we probably have these two positions in our church. The, the first and most popular today is that election begins with us. We take the first step in choosing and believing in God, and because God knows all things, and including the future, He sees that we choose Him, and in response, He chooses us. The driving force that gives rise to this position is the desire to uphold and maintain the, the true doctrine that God predestined or chose us before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians 1, but at the same time uphold a, a conception of free will. And trying to hold those two together has led to the elevation of the, a concept of free will above the biblical explanation of election. Again, this results in the view that before creation even began, God looked down the corridors of time and He saw that you would believe on Him, and in response, He chose you. This is drawn from a misunderstanding of Romans 8.29, which says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. It's said that there you are, He foreknew, He knew that you would choose Him and therefore He predestined you. But that's not what the passage says. It does not say that God foreknew our choices, though that is a true statement. He certainly did know our choices. The verse says He foreknew a people, and in knowing those people, He chose them. Other passages where Paul or uh, Peter and, and Paul talk about people being foreknown include 1 Peter 1.20, where Christ is said to be foreknown, and clearly the, the indication is not that God knew something about Christ, but that He knew Him in whole. Or Romans chapter 11, verse 12, which identifies Israel, the nation of Israel, as having been foreknown. And that passage is important because the consistent testimony of Scripture was that God did not choose Israel because of how He anticipated they would respond to Him. Rather, He chose them despite their constant rebellion against Him. But you know, there actually is a passage in Scripture that tells us what God saw in us that caused us to choose Him. And that passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Let me read that for you. For consider your calling, brethren. Okay, so here's Paul telling you and I, consider your calling. That there were not many wise according to the flesh. Do we have any wise philosophers here? Not many mighty, do we have any Olympians in this room? Probably wouldn't be here if you were an Olympian, because you'd be in Japan. Not many noble, do we have anybody of noble blood, anybody who's in line to be a king or a queen? Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. 
So according to this passage, God chose you and me, not on the basis of the fact that we chose him, but on the basis that you and I are foolish, weak, despised, and nothing. Don't you feel encouraged this morning? (laughs) Now you should, because if it weren't for him choosing us, we wouldn't be saved. What undergirds the biblical doctrine of election is the reality that whenever Scripture speaks about our will as it, as it relates to making moral and spiritual decisions, it doesn't describe it as free, but as being bound to sin to the degree that we are incapable of choosing God. In fact, let me give you this proper definition of free will. What is a free will? The will is free to act according to its nature. The will is free to act according to its nature. On the other hand, the will is not free to act contrary to its nature. It's not free to act contrary to its nature. We see this in a passage like Jeremiah 13, 23, where it says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can't change your skin color You don't have the the freedom of a will to change your skin color because you're not a comedian. Or, excuse me, a chameleon. (laughs) You're not a chameleon. You don't have the free will to fly because humans aren't birds. If you lose an arm, you you don't have the will to grow it back because you're not a starfish. We are only free to make choices according to our nature. And so the question becomes, what is our nature? Well, let me quickly rattle off several passages where God explicitly and clearly describes the condition of the unredeemed will. You could ask, what condition are you and I born into? Consider Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 where it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all, too, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, that is, the desires, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Or or think about the universal language in Romans 3, verses 19 to 18, where it says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. And then he goes on to list a variety of behaviors that reflect that depravity. And he ends that passage by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Or listen to the language of inability from Romans 8, verses 5 to 8. Paul writes, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Finally, right here from the book of Titus, remember how Paul again describes the former state of believers before God saves us when he says in chapter 3, verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I said earlier, Romans 6 tells us that we were slaves to sin until Christ set us free. Now, there are more passages you could look at to 
reaffirm these truths, Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, or Colossians 1, 21 to 22, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But you get the point. The key to understanding the doctrine of election is to first come to grips with what God has revealed is the natural condition of the unredeemed soul. And as you've heard, the soul is bound to sin and is incapable of knowing God, desiring God, or choosing God. That's what the Scripture says unequivocally and without contradiction. Now, our struggle, and we have to recognize this, our struggle is that our perceived experience doesn't always match with those descriptions. Some of us grew up in church, and we've never felt hostile to God a day in our life. Some of you didn't grow up in church, and you never felt like the way you were living was out of some kind of anger toward God. We can question this truth because when we were unbelievers, life felt natural, not compulsory. We didn't feel like sin was just pulling us along apart from our desire. And then when we came to Christ, we didn't feel like anything was was forcing us to believe. Instead, it felt natural, not compelled. And you know, that's exactly the point. Sin is natural to the unbeliever because it is their nature as it was ours. Most people don't live a life of sin because they're consciously angry at God. Some never even think about God. But that's a very hateful position, if you think about it. To never think about the God who made you in his image. To never be thankful to the one who sustains your life every day. How much would you have to hate someone to not even give them a second of a day? Well, on the other hand, likewise, when you believe, no one forced you to do it. It just felt right. And you know why it felt right? It's because your nature had been changed. Your eyes saw truth and beauty where you once saw foolishness and ugliness. Things came together in your mind like they never had. Why? Because you were born again. And like a newborn baby breathes its first breath of air, demonstrating it is alive, your understanding and faith in Christ demonstrates that you had been made alive in Christ. But in order for that to happen, God had to choose to do that for you because you were incapable of making that choice yourself. It was in our dead, sinful condition that God set his love on us, poured out the riches of his mercy, and saved us by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 1 John 4.10 couldn't be clearer. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or consider John 1, verses 12 to 13, where it says, But as many as received Him, that is Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And some people stop there and say, Aha, see, there you go. If you believe in His name, He gives you the right to become children of God. But that's not the end of the sentence. What follows is John's explanation of why people were able to believe. And he says this. Let me just start from the beginning. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, God did not choose you because he saw that you would be a great asset to his kingdom. God did not choose you because he saw that you would choose him first. He didn't save you because that's what you wanted, and he certainly didn't save any of us because we measured up to some standard of goodness. Can I tell you why God chose to save you? The answer is this. Because he wanted to. That's what John says there in chapter 1. We were born of God. We were born into God's family solely by God's will. 
Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Later on in verse 11, he says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. So God saves people, not because he has to save people, not because he's compelled by some outside force to save people, not because people deserve to be saved, but simply because he wants to save them. Now, we can go one step further and identify what what motivates that choice on God's part. And the explanation is he chooses to save people to put his glory on display. God saves people to demonstrate his character. He chooses sinners to redeem so that everyone will know what he is like. We find this truth also in Ephesians 1. Again, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And the same is given in 11 and 12. Again, we have been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says the same thing. uh, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The whole plan of redemption was to put God on display so that all would see and bow the knee and worship. Now think about this for yourself personally. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you have called upon Jesus as Lord for the forgiveness of your sins, what is the explanation for the fact that you were born into this world, a sinner, separated and hostile to God, deserving his full wrath, bound for hell with no escape, and frankly, no desire to escape? Maybe you heard the gospel once, maybe you heard it a thousand times, but at some point, God changed your thinking, and he awakened you to spiritual realities and made you realize that there's nothing worse than hell and nothing more wonderful than Jesus. And now you are rescued from eternal damnation and bound for eternal glory with the God who loved you and gave himself for you. Are you the explanation of that? Are you so smart or so innately good or so wise that you orchestrated your life in a way that the gospel would come to you at just the right time and you analyzed the information and came to a logical conclusion and made an unaided decision? I realize we can wrestle with the the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and that is a worthy discussion to have. But fundamentally, who is responsible for your salvation? Any believer, even those who have a different view of election, knows that God is ultimately the explanation of why anybody is saved. God oriented salvation in such a way that ensures that no man gets the credit or can boast in their salvation. We can never say, gosh, why won't those people believe? I'm so glad that I made the right choice. Uh Uh-uh. The key component that ensures that only God gets the credit is how Paul describes believers here in Titus 1.1. They are chosen of God. Now, how does that fuel a life zealous for good deeds? When you realize that apart from God, you were one of the billions of people on the earth headed for destruction with no hope and not even a desire to escape, and you contemplate on what the Bible actually says about eternal destruction, that it is punishment and torment for lifetimes beyond number, When you also realize that life apart from God is meaningless and purposeless and hopeless and full of pain and difficulty, but that God, for no reason other than his own fathomless grace, has saved you and forgiven you and redeemed you and reconstituted you as a new being, 
giving you new meaning and purpose and significance, the more you understand those realities, the more you will be compelled to give yourself to Him. The more you understand the cost that Jesus paid to save you while you were His enemy, the more you will devote yourself to His service. The more you understand the heights of love and the forgiveness of God and the depths of your sin, the more you will hate your sin and desire to please Him. The more you see yourself as an unworthy sinner who is a recipient of the infinite riches of God's grace, the more you'll be able to extend that infinite grace to those around you, even those who bring suffering into your life. The more you grasp the wickedness of your former ways of living out of which God rescued you, the more you will desire to pursue the manner of life that we'll learn about here in the book of Titus. And the more you comprehend just how great God is, the more you will want to tell other people about Him. I know this doctrine raises questions, and there are some answers to those questions. There's also a lot of mystery. But more than anything, this doctrine that you as a believer are chosen by God should propel you forward in taking up your cross daily and following after Jesus who chose you to be His slave and who commissioned you to be His ambassador. Amen? Let's go before the Lord, and as I pray, the men will be coming up to serve the Lord's Supper. Our great God, You who chose us before the foundation of the world, we have no rights to claim before You. We have nothing that would put us before You and, and commend us to be saved by you. We are only unworthy sinners. All that we deserve is your punishment and your wrath. And yet, in your abundant grace, in the riches of your kindness and love, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay that penalty that we deserve. And having chosen us in eternity past, then in, in time and space, you set your love on us, particularly you opened our eyes, you gave us a new heart, and you gave us the gift of faith and repentance. Lord, salvation is all of you and none of us. It is all for your glory and not our own. Lord, may these truths, which are so easily and quickly forgotten or ignored, May they be fresh on our minds, not just now, but later this afternoon and tomorrow and throughout the week so that as we live, we see ourselves as you see us, as those who are your slaves, who've been commissioned as your ambassadors, those who've been chosen despite our just deserts. Lord, help us not pursue our own ambitions. Help us not live for ourselves or to make ourselves great in this world but to live for you, to proclaim Christ, to give ourselves to him as a sacrificial offering so that you would be glorified in all things. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.